All right. Hello and welcome again. This is the second uh, segment of our discussion with Mark Sloboda. Uh, we are on the barricades. I'm Boyan Stanislavski and with me is Maria Chernat, the usual co-host of the program. Hello, Maria. Hello. And of course, hello to Mark Sloboda. Just to uh, just to remind you, our guest uh, is an international security expert who served in the United States Navy before uh, <clears throat> getting involved with the uh, Russian academia. Mm -hmm. and. <laughs> and London School of Economics. Uh, so, Mark, uh, Mark, thanks uh, a lot for uh, being here with us. Uh, and let's let's just dive uh, into uh, into the topic, which is, of course, Ukraine uh, Russia crisis war. Uh, we uh, we spoke about the situation on all uh, all fronts, uh, and now I want uh, to perhaps. Um, Speak a, li a little bit about the kind of the international, well, the international dimension, but also the diplomatic dimension here, because this is something rather unusual, particularly for the Westerners. I think that's one of the reasons why I feel they, they, uh, they, they sort of, um, they can afford so much contempt, because from their point of view, it all seems uh, like Russia is losing in a sense that they've lost quite quite many troops, in a sense that you know they're they're. Uh, uh, they're, they're discussing, they're negotiating, like while they are conducting their military campaign. That's something that I'm afraid is not exactly compatible with the Western mindset. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, Boy and Maria, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be with you on the barricades. Yeah, as I talked about before the intervention happened on, on multiple things, that you will not see with Russia a stopping of diplomacy where you then have a military campaign and then only have diplomacy again at the end of the military campaign. This was the exact same style they have used in Syria the entire time. They never stopped talking to the leaders of the um, either, you know, uh, the leaders of, uh, you know, the Western and Gulf countries and Turkey that were, um, you know, uh, promoting uh, that were, um, arming, training, uh, and, and salaring uh, the uh, jihadist forces, the Islamists, uh, but also that they selectively engaged all of the time the leaders of the Islamist forces them on the ground themselves and tried to co-opt them, uh, tried various deals at a basically local autonomy for towns and everything. So they were always, it was with you know, the, 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 if you want to say the, the uh, silk glove over the iron fist, but always with the silk glove first, uh -huh. right? And that is what you have seen. And I do think that the Russian military has made mistakes, that some of their fundamental initial assessments were wrong. Their initial tactics were wrong. They, of course, had plan Bs and plan Cs. They have been put into place. The Russian military has readjusted. They've lost the information war hands down, but on the, the ground, their plan B strategic goals are being met. Maybe not on Twitter speed, right? Um, not on, on the speed you know that, that people are used to. But if you look back at the last time you saw something of this big of a scale unfold, the US uh, you know, invade, bombing, invasion, and occupation of Iraq, it took the US military 40 days to get into Baghdad. 
Right. Yeah, and they and, and they bumped it, it, and they went for the kill. They, they went for Saddam Hussein. They killed him, like, or they they hanged him afterwards. I guess, like, yeah, I, that I was think. afterwards. Yes. Yeah, that was afterwards. Anyway, Gaddafi, you know, they Gaddafi even, was yes, killed. Yes, yeah. yes, but yes. even Gaddafi, until the U.S. Air Force uh, went in because the French and and uh, the the um, uh, British couldn't handle it, and until they brought in these um, trained uh, Islamists that were trained in the Gulf uh, by uh, the UAE, a buttressed by a UAE special forces on the ground to take Tripoli. That campaign dragged for weeks, months, if you will remember, with Gaddafi holding out until that that they you know upped the ante, if you will. Um, on on the ground, Russia is taking more casualties than they expected, both or than they wanted to right, in their most optimistic assessments, both in terms of manpower and equipment, but they're using quite purposefully a lot of older equipment, right, uh, things that they feel they can afford to sacrifice while saving all of their best stuff in reserve, again, for the contingency if NATO goes insane yeah. and tries to enter. The that, that was exactly my and initial impression when I looked at all those uh, vehicles that it's like not second tier, it's like third tier. Third tier, a lot of it, right? They, they don't want to waste <laughs> their best stuff when there's always the possibility that NATO could intervene on this. Yes, this is very interesting because I think it is for the first time in U.S. recent history when you see a conflict between military elites. There are those who are pushing for war and there are those who are against the war. And I think it's for the first time where the conflict is so obvious. I mean, you have people and army generals going on Fox News advising that it will be uh, insane to go to, to war, where there are others that are actually pushing for it, like Anthony Blinking. And I see also a, a division, I don't know if my intuition is correct, but the ones pushing for war are more pol politically oriented or coming yes. from the ideologically obsessed, maybe. And for the from the political elites, yeah. while the military ones close yeah. to Pentagon and the military uh, uh, personnel yeah. are are not pushing for more it. professional. This, this is going to shock you, right? When I tell you that actually the military brass in the United States is generally a lot more intelligent and sane than their political leaders. And, and I say that, you know, as an ex-U.S. military guy, most of our gen U.S. generals are scholars, right? I mean, they, they are all Ph.D. level with, with multiple, you know, papers out, published, right? Um, the U.S. military uh, at the top ranks of the brass is a very, you know, education-heavy military. Not to say they're all good guys, right? You know, they're deeply focused on U.S. national interests. But as necessary, they have a realist assessment of the world, right? Because they potentially have to deal with other countries, not just, you know, pure conventional competitors like Russia and China, but, you know, with the possibility of nuclear conflict as well. And they are the sane heads. If you take a look at this recent incident where Poland, a, Pol a bunch of Polish politicians talked to a bunch of American politicians and came up with the idea the MiG-29. Yes, that, wow. that Poland would transfer its old MiG-29 fleet still in service to the U.S. And that's so Germany, embarrassing. I didn't even right? want to bring it up. <laughs> and, and the U.S. would then 
deliver it somehow to somebody in Ukraine, right? And, you know, this went on and it was, you know, it was gonna happen, right? Mm -hmm. The media told you that everywhere. And then eventually the U.S. military weighed in and said, no, that's not going to happen. No, but now just to to let you know, because I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Why do you say it is embarrassing? Oh, it's embarrassing because it's such a crazy idea. It's such a crazy idea on its face. Let me tell you why. Because I think Poland responded in a very clever way under pressure. And my fear is that maybe had it been the case that the Romanians would have been asked to do the same, to send some plans, they would have done it. Okay. And Poland Look, I, I don't want to speculate. This, uh, Look, I, I don't even want to speculate about out of the situation. Who's better? Who's worse in terms of mental balance? You know, in, in <laughs> Polish and and, and uh, Romanian elites. Because that's, Bulgarian that's, that's that's a really tough thing to assess. Uh, yeah, uh, that's that, no, that's very no, tough. No, you're right. Not, you, you ours need, are you, crazier you and more obedient. I, I say that psychology. with a drop of Polish blood myself. You know, my majority Russian and Slovak, but you know, I've got a, uh, one Polish ancestor. In there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see, but but I want to I want to tell you that now they are contemplating, and you know, our supreme leader here in Poland, we've got one politician who has no holds no position. <laughs> but he actually runs the entire internal political process. His name is Yaroslav Kaczynski. And, uh, you know, he is, uh, he came up today or yesterday, was it, uh, with the idea that there should be a NATO peacekeeping mission installed right away in Ukraine. And when he was asked by journalists, okay, but, you know, the Russians are going to take it out, that he said, well, it should be a mission that with, with the capacity to defend itself. Like, you know, <laughs> we're talking about we're talking about uh, really weird statements, weird even by our Eastern European standards. OK, so that, that's why I didn't want to bring all those things up, because first of all, politicians very have a, often have a really. Im, they, they do not have any proper assessment of what is militarily capable, you know, of, of what their own militaries are capable of doing. They are used to 30 years of US military hegemony unipolar moment around the world. And now that they're being confronted with something that they cannot do something about, they're all freaking out, right? And they're yeah. also always playing to a domestic political audience. And even when they might know better, they're still saying things, thinking more out of their own political careers and bases, right? You know, which in Poland are eternally flamed by, you know, this insecurity complex with Russia, yeah. you know, history, culture, and, and for hundreds and hundreds of years back and forth. And they, they really hate Russians there. And the Russians similarly regard the Polish with a kind of bemused disregard and contempt. <laughs> okay, well, I would take issue with that. I mean, I visited Russia a couple of times and with Polish friends, including, and, and we never had, we never encountered any kind of reaction of that sort. Whereas in Poland, the Russians the have been, elite. yeah, okay, the political elite, yeah. Whereas in Poland, you know, Russians uh, live, that have lived in Poland now for, I don't know how many, 20 years, for example, or something like that, they, they've always been complaining about, yeah. uh, you know, the, the attitude of the. But anyway, that's a different topic. But Mark, I really care that we go back to the question of the negotiations, mm -hmm. because I want to know, I, I really want to know, uh, but what do the Russians hope to gain from the talks? Because for me, you know, and again, it's my assessment on the basis of what's all available on the public record, is that they're not hoping for anything here, really, in yeah. a sense that, okay, that would be great if they can actually put in place those corridors, humanitarian corridors you know for civilians to leave and they hope that this this uh, works out but 
I, I don't feel that there's any yeah. hope on their end that they're uh, they're going to convince Zelensky yeah. and his acolytes or his handlers or whatever to actually uh, uh, you know sign this capitulation and yeah. fulfill the four demands. Okay, so first of all, the humanitarian corridors is a priority because that's a tactical level thing, right? They want to get the, they, again, they're trying to minimize casualties as much as possible in urban uh, conflict. And they use humanitarian corridors quite a lot, fairly effectively in Syria, mm -hmm. right? Um, they, they want to get guarantees on those and use them. But the problem that they've come to realize is that whatever Zelensky says, he has very little control over his, I mean, first of all, the Ukrainian military's command and control structure is, is splintered and, and essentially non-existent at this point, right? Uh, and that was one of the Russian military you know, goals, right? Uh, their communication, their command and control, it, it, it's barely functioning, if at all. Uh, second of all, from the very beginning, Zelensky has demonstrated from the very first days of his office that he has no control over the far right whatsoever. Uh -huh. You know, these the, these militias, whether they're in their own discrete formations or, uh, you know, uh, infiltrated, scattered throughout the military, uh, he has no control of them. He confronted them in the early days. He actually I mean, the videos are out there. He went out to the trenches uh, you know, of the conflict zone. And he had a confrontation with a local Azov commander there where he said, you know, uh, we're going to start to follow the Minsk, you know, protocols, pull the heavy weapons back. And the guy said no. And they got into this ridiculous conversation where Zelensky said, I'm 41 years old and I'm the president of Ukraine. I'm not a loser. I mean, that's exactly what he said. The videos are out there. And this Azov guy basically told him no. <laughs> we're not going to do that and that was it and Zelensky at that point gave up trying to tell the far right what to do in the country Avakov explained you know the rules of his reality how this regime depended on them uh, uh, you know from the beginning uh, through today and that was it and he just made his peace with them um, and, and they have their own autonomy and, and there are far too many credible reports reports I have heard firsthand from people in Mariupol that they're not allowed to use the humanitarian corridors when Azov isn't simply preventing them from using them. They're actually sh in from their positions on top of the residential buildings, shooting people who are trying to leave. So right? what are they hoping for these Azov people, th these maniacs? Like what they are hoping for what? Like the, the entire city be obliterated? Or yes. What? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they hate the people of Mariupol. Uh -huh. <laughs> Remember, Mariupol went originally for the russian spring yeah, they Azov voted. came yeah. back in and reconquered it and they were headquarters were put there to keep mariupol under jackboot and remember so they mariupol, were occupying them yeah occupying them yeah very brutally and mariupol has a high uh ukrainian greek population and if you pay attention to the greek press they're insane, you know, upset about this. They've got people trapped there that they can't get out. There's articles, you know, in the Greek press, these from, you know, coming, you know, from, you know, the people who have family there, uh, you know, they're saying these fascists are killing us, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, one way, you know, either and directly unfortunately, or not none, of this, none of this, none goes of this goes out in the, the, and this is another question. How do we address and how, when you stand against such a huge propaganda machine, how do we address the public? How do we, we, we convey this message that there are no good guys in this story? 
there is no black and white. You have to see the reality and you don't have to get your high hopes on, on media heroes that are presented and packaged. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just want to say here that uh, because when you said media heroes that are packaged, I think that, you know, not when I come to think about Zelensky, he's an actor uh, and he is basically he has got no control, no real influence, uh, despite the position that he holds, I think. And he's on memes everywhere, like presented as a hero. I think he is the hero of our times. Like he's really fit for that role. Like this is. Have you seen the videos? Uh, the jokes he did when he was still a comedian and the war in the in the Donbass had started, where he was joking about how, oh, you know, um, you know, I did what, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, recounting the role of someone. Oh, I had to join the Banderites because they run the country now. And the, yeah, the pay is really bad, but you're allowed to take all the stuff from the Russians. Uh, you know, they're allowed to loot all the ethnic Russians in, in the Donbass. And that was the idea of comedy. Right. That was mm -hmm. funny stuff. Right. Uh, so he was already internalizing a lot of this, this stuff. Yeah. Okay. But guys, we're digressing again. I want to speak about the negotiations. negotiations yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it, right. So officially, uh, originally the Russian demands going in were um, that the regime in Kiev uh, constitutionally installs that it will never join NATO and, and gives up uh, you know, NATO weapons on their territory, NATO training, all, all that sort of thing. Uh, and they never join any, not, not the CSTO either, you know, that they put in that they are a neutral country. Um, that um, the uh, regime in Kiev recognizes that Crimea uh, voted in a referendum to join Russia, uh, that the DNR and LNR are now independent states. Um, the demilitarization of Ukraine, which was left vaguely defined, Oh, I suppose um, it just means limiting the offensive the capability. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, and the denazification or to, I would say, which is cleansing the, right, the far right. Is that what the, it the far right? Yes. The, yeah. the, the, the de-banderize. I, I, I don't like calling them Nazis. They're banderite fascists. It's a specific homegrown far right ideology. Um, but that would mean not only the discrete, the battalions, but their infiltration into the military, the police, the security services, the mainstream Maidan political parties, uh, and basically all of Western Ukraine. So I don't know how you could really uh, do that. Um, it seems impossible, actually. It, it does seem. I mean, it's something that I, I think it's like, it's horrible to speak in, in human terms like this but i'm talking about it as an ideology it's something that you have to treat like your yard that you have to constantly trim well anyway but uh mark because uh the question here is really those negotiations vis-a-vis uh, -vis what we discussed in the previous segment that you know whether they're going to go with their military into western ukraine and there's going to be an insurgency <laughs> there or maybe there's going to be even more uh well, opposition in general, but also military action against uh, the Russian troops. And that's uh, that's a pretty toxic prospect, right, for the Russians. So I'm wondering, perhaps the end game here, I mean, with the talks, uh, is that uh, they they want to avoid going there. They want to somehow coerce yeah. uh, Zelensky into capitulating. And but, but how are they going to have the full control mm. over, the, uh, over the Ukrainian territory? They don't. They don't. I don't think that has ever been the intention or or maybe that was an idea 
for the end game in the most optimistic initial scenarios. So are they going to partition the country? I, I think I don't see a way this ends. First of all, Russia uh-huh. cannot militarily occupy all of Ukraine. They, they, they simply it would particularly under under the US, the Western economic warfare. They, they will have a very hard time re economically rebuilding even the east of the country mm-hmm. right I, I don't know how uh, they would do this and uh, the idea that they could replace someone in kiev with someone uh, you know a eastern ukrainian uh, opposition leader from the opposition or block that is looking uh, pretty uh, impossible at this point too um i would say that uh, Again, they do. They always say that we don't intend regime change, but in some way or fashion, there is no way for Russia to accomplish what I would consider to be their most vital political goals out of this without doing that to some extent. I think it's going to come down to some type of partition, balkanization of the country. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I don't see any other possibilities being realistic. Um, unless Russia does Yeah, but is something. the goal going to be met then? Because then they're going to have this Western Ukraine, which is going to yes. be full, which is going to be NATO outpost, like military outpost, and it's going to be full of most deadly weapons, probably, and all the rest of it. So what's what was the point of the whole game from the beginning in that situation? Then that is simply, first of all, you can't do anything about West Ukraine, right? Um, that was always going to be that way. A big part of Russian thinking here is that they have to save eastern ukraine from the western half of the country they think that eastern ukraine is still salvageable and at least in military strategic terms that if west east ukraine is separated from west ukraine russian military strategy thinks in terms of strategic depth right Mm -hmm. always a fighting retreat to moscow the way that they have always dealt with whether it was the polish invasion napoleon's invasion hitler's invasion uh charles uh uh, the 12th of sweden they always trade space for organization and manpower uh time and at least east ukraine would prevent more strategic space plus there really is i think in the russian mind an idea and i think it's in the Kremlin as well, that that East Ukraine is still Nashi. These are our Ukrainians. Those other Ukrainians, we can't do anything about 60 years of the Soviet Union uh, failed to get, you know, uh, the Bandera ideology out of Western Ukraine. They were separated from the rest of Ukraine for so long, historically, culturally, uh, and, you know, it was probably a mistake for Stalin to ever <laughs> take them in 1939, uh, you know, into the rest of Ukraine. Uh, so there are no good options. There are only less bad options. And whatever Russia's military goals, they will be met. They will not be as well met as in their initially optimistic scenarios, and they will pay a higher price for it. As for their political goals, those have been downgraded, I think, as well. Some political goals will be met, but not all of them. And there's no way that they can all be met to 100% satisfaction. You can't de-banderize all of Ukraine. So you want to say that all those four four provisions, four clauses, four, four conditions, okay, that they they've stressed so many times that no negotiations on that they're finally gonna back down and oh yeah yeah i mean certainly i i I don't think and 
as with the initial conditions when they went to the United States asking for security guarantees and they started addressing every violation that NATO has made since, you know, 1987, um, they, those were maximalist demands intended to be talked down from. Mm -hmm. And I think that Russia does have a clear realistic assessments that is being adjusted over time as to exactly what is possible in Ukraine and how far off those, you know, maximalist demands they are willing to go, but that will continually be adjusted. I think that Russia will still accomplish a lot. They are not defeated in Ukraine, however much the information war, but they won't have as clear as a victory as the most optimistic scenarios presented, either militarily or politically. But, but are you anticipating they're going to have to go through Zelensky and this current administration in order to settle it down somehow? Because you you clearly ruled out any kind of regime change operation yeah. in its classical form. I my initial thought was they would try to put an Eastern European, uh, Eastern Ukrainian leader like Medvedchuk, Boyko, uh, someone in there, even to bring back Yanukovych, although mm -hmm. I think that would be a mistake. But I have seen no signs of movement in that regard at all. And I think they're hoping to saddle Zelensky with a humiliating capitulation and then letting Kiev the nationalists, the politicians, you know, uh, eat everyone apart there. Because we all know that, okay, you, everyone knows that Zelensky is a puppet for Kolomoisky. <laughs> I mean, uh, let's be honest. I mean, he was created as a fictional character who accidentally became president in the Servant of the People TV show on Kolomoisky's channel. This is Kolomoisky's regime. And Kolomoisky is a cunning creature. Uh, but he will be perfectly willing to throw. He's been funding, despite being Jewish, he was the one who was funding uh, Idar, Azov, many of the other far-right battalions from the very beginning, despite being Jewish himself, of course, uh, because they were useful. That's exactly the same way that the far-right views him. <laughs> okay, well, um, but, but in this case, so we, we have Ukraine, which is a directorate of oligarchs. I don't know how to call it, yeah. for lack of a better uh, phrase here. So, but but then there's the, this. There are those right wing forces which seem to keep everyone a hostage because they are very violent and they are very uh, passionate. Yeah. Okay. Ideological. Right? Yes. And ideologically, kind of. Okay. All right. But then you know, uh, Zelensky in. In all of this is just, as you said, a pawn, right? Like he he will do whatever he is requested to do. But there seems to be some kind of uh, well inconsistency here, in a sense that, well, if he's so weak, he knows. If we know that, then he he probably knows that too. That he's got nothing. Unless to he say. started to internalize his own fable at this. Or point. yeah, or maybe. But look, I'm, uh, there was this rumor, right, that uh, the Americans were prepared to extract him, and he still stayed there. So, uh, like, on the one hand, it seems very foggy and murky, and I don't, I don't understand what the Russians are hoping for, and I don't understand what Zelensky is hoping for in the whole thing. Like, it's a mess, and I'm, I'm just afraid that everybody's expecting uh, they're, they're going to see what happens, like, you know, the day after, a week after, and they're going to react and, and improvise on, on the spot. So is this, is this a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I think it is. I don't think that, again, I think Russia, the Kremlin is constantly readjusting what their end game is. But I think at this point, they want to saddle 
Zelensky with a humiliating capitulation that will the far right forces will turn on him and then Kiev will erupt and probably the far right, some far right leader will emerge, maybe on the top, maybe just on top of the pack of the others. And then you will probably see Russia restart the military conflict at some point. So you say that Russia has not really started the real offensive yet. Is that how I should? I think Russia is ready for a very long game in Ukraine with the idea that the entire country will never be whole or stable again. You will remember that uh, Putin specifically warned Zelensky at many times during this that you your actions are threatening Ukrainian statehood. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know because of their own internal divisions and the exacerbation, you know, the pool between East and West and so on. And I think, you know, he's constantly also made reference to, you know, you keep saying you wanted the decommunization of Ukraine. And he specifically pointed out what the borders of a, the Ukrainian state, such as it were, were before, uh, you know, uh, uh, Lenin, uh, you know, in, in that interwar period. Um, and uh, he's prepared to leave, I think, a rump Ukrainian state with most of the rest of the country balkanized, um, as that may be, in security terms, what can present the least threat to Russia in the future, something that can be divided and, and you know, is not a unified threat, and which will culturally uh, socially protect and uh, provide some degree of isolation of East Ukraine from the rest of the map. Okay, okay. So you're also anticipating that Russia is not ma- going to manually uh, politically drive the, pol- the, the the internal processes in all those countries that's go- that are going to emerge after this conflict ends at some point in the future. Well, never completely, no. Right. No. I mean, th- these will not be twelve little Russian, you know, or or whatever. Um, uh, directly controlled states. Of course, they will all inevitably be relying on Russia for energy, the same way everyone in Eastern Europe is, mm. right? Uh, that will always be a lever. Trade, right? Um, you know, there Russia does have many avenues of influence, particularly over, you know, political and economic elites. And it Look at the cost to the Ukrainian economy, what the last eight years of trying to form an anti-Russian Ukrainian nation has cost the country. What was their biggest trading partner? Ukraine is now the poorest country in Europe on a per capita basis, poorer than Moldova, right? That has been the cost of the last eight years, right? And that is not going to change, uh, you know, whatever comes out of this conflict. Uh, Ukraine will be more economically wrecked than ever. They will still be as economically reliant, uh, you know, for energy and many other things on Russia. Um, And, you know, this is, I I think Ukraine at this point is unfortunately, because I had no problems with the idea of a Ukrainian state, as long as it wasn't a Banderite one. But, um, you know, Ukrainian statehood, as we know it, has ended. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, for a lot of the so there is no Ukraine. option in your but opinion maybe, for maybe the... because yeah, I, I saw finally 
after all the, the death, destruction, everything that happened in Ukraine, finally, I saw Zelensky saying that he gave up on the idea of joining NATO. I mean, come on, it was so yeah. obvious right and, from the beginning. The <laughs> day after that. Said, no, but he said that like uh, yesterday, and he said that he is glad that probably his people saw that and that he understood that maybe there is some hope that he will And then the very next day, he's doing a video Congress, a video interviews with the U.S. Congress and the Canadian Parliament, begging for a no-fly zone, begging for S-300 defense systems, if not that, and, and so on. You know, neither side is ready for you know, any type of serious peace negotiation at this point. Mm-hmm. Okay, but, but just just want to ask this question for the end of the program. Uh, so y- your anticipation is that there's no option that the initial rush or what seems to be the initial Russian idea that they're going to have Ukraine, which is going to be neutral and the guarantor of uh, the security of which is going to be Russia this time, not the West. This is out of question. This isn't going to happen. Yeah, I don't think that. I, I, I think that that was a optimistic scenario and as as with always you know when you're doing such you know military political plans you have a plan a a plan b a plan c and and Mm -hmm. so on and i definitely think russia is on their plan b okay and and for the very last like i know we're over time 30 seconds like please we gotta we gotta ask you because you're an american living in russia and you saw zelensky actually i immigrated to russia i'm now a russian citizen Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I said, now you're in Russia. I, I didn't uh, sort of, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, what, I, what I'm trying to say is that, uh, you know, as, as a kind of, you know, person with American origins, whatever, you look at this thing, you know, that the, if, if this performance, okay, before, before the Congress, and, you know, <clears throat> I got to tell you that for me, it was difficult already in a sense that I had to, you know, sometimes you get this secondhand embarrassment and things are so cringy that you got to, you know, you, you got to take a break, right? And then you can come back and kind of go like, so, and then, you know, Nancy Pelosi saying those uh, slogans. Slava you know, Uhaini. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I mean, how, how did you feel? How did you, uh, like, what was your... Uh, just nauseous. No, I actually, uh, I mean, hearing Zelensky refer to the, the U.S. as the leader of peace in the world, yeah, yeah, Iraq, Serbia, Libya, you know, Afghanistan, and so on, and then invoking everything, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, Martin Luther King, who was against the U.S. military complex and was pretty sympathetic to communism, and Zelensky is the head of a regime that has, you know, embarked on the complete decommunization of Ukraine. Um, you know, I, it all, it was all very cringe for me. Did you, did you see what Zelensky was wearing? Yeah. No, well, they, no. Oh, uh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I have yeah, no yeah. idea. He, First of all, he's deliberately creating this persona as the beleaguered leader, desperate leader of a country in war. So he hadn't shaved his hair yeah, was a yeah, mess. Yeah. And he's wearing this, you know, pullover type uh, sweatshirt, uh, you know, overshirt. But did you see what was on? On it? Yeah, the, the cross, right? The iron cross. The iron cross, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Because, I mean, 
I didn't expect him to wear like a wolf's angel, you know, like his Azov neo-Nazi death squads or the red and black of his uh, right sector or something. You know, uh, the Iron Cross is a World War I German-Prussian symbol. I have no idea what that means. But yeah, I have no very, idea what that means. I don't know whether it's out of ignorance or out yeah, of bad I, taste. I'm not sure. But. Very interesting. Because, you know, his PR managers are running everything. What I'm sure that was meant to mean something but mm-hmm. I honestly don't have a clue. And I'm very interested to hear the spin that comes out of that, uh, it, you know, if anyone actually addresses it in the next Yeah, year. yeah, yeah. But obviously it didn't tell anything. I don't think it really conveyed any message to the American congressman. No, I, yeah, that <laughs> Slava Uhaini, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's so cringe. I mean, yeah. first of all, the idea that American congressmen, you know, politicians around the world are mouthing the... Nazi collaborators collaborating Holocaust perpetrating OUN slogans on the same, you know, logic. Oh, it's different now, which is kind of like the effect of saying, oh, the swastika is really a Hindu rune, you know, and, you know, that that kind of excuses away. But they can't even pronounce it correctly. Right. And we, we had also Nancy Pelosi refer to Zelensky in the last week as the Ukrainian leader, President Kerensky, (laughs) only a century off of that. The U.S. Secretary of Defense, right, Austin, (laughs) referred to the Soviet invasion (laughs) of Ukraine. I know, know. and before the war. And Joe uh, Biden saying that Russia will never win the hearts and minds of the Iranian Iranian people. people. Yeah, and before that, before that, he, before the war started, he called All of that is the type of cringe that, you know, despite all the many problems that Russia has, never makes me regret that I left that country and its politics. Oh, we have to invite you and, and, and tell us more about it because you're, I'm so you're, 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 not, not just the, not, not just the territorial transgression, but the political and the social yes, migration. I am so curious. Why did you do it? And right. But anyway, guys, not this time, not on this show, edition, yes. because we went really badly over time. And Mark, I want to thank you for staying up late for us to record this program. We very, very much appreciate your analysis and, and your insightful comments and i'm sure the same is the case with our uh, readers and viewers and listeners and i want to thank you and i want to thank them that is you our dear listeners and viewers and i want to thank you maria for being with us and uh, see you sometime soon uh we are on the barricades and uh please don't forget to support us on the barricades by going to our patreon page patreon.com slash the barricade where to the extent that you feel you can afford, you can make a monthly subscription. Bye, fellow travelers. Support them. Thanks. Ciao. Cheers.